Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Our guest today is Etan Gelber. So I will turn it over to you, sir, to give the listeners a little background on yourself, please. Uh, thank you, Neil and Dennis, for the opportunity to be part of your podcast. It's a great honor and a pleasure. Eitan Gelber, originally from the land of milk and honey and no money, Israel, <laughs> uh, born and raised uh, over there. My journey with movement started from very young age. I actually, at the age of three, almost died from bacterial meningitis. Oh. And I had a lot of problems with balance and coordination. So the physician told my parents after I recovered, after they did different assessments, that you should probably send your son to some martial arts. They recommended judo because judo was more prevalent back then in Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started as a kid practicing judo. I really did not like it. I like to play soccer with my friends up in the streets and, and have some good time. Basically, I was forced to do judo. And today I'm obviously very thankful for that because it did change my life. I sticked with it. And over the years, I started to compete and came into the national junior team in Israel. At the same time, again, talking about movement, physical education, big thing in Israel is preparation for military. So mm-hmm. yes, a lot of high schoolers actually going to some physical preparation courses and learn about physical prep per se and mental prep for military as well. So those two combinations were early influencer on where I want to go. And a few months ago, I looked, I found an old notebook when I was in third grade and, and said, what do you want to do when you're going to be old? And it looks like I want to be like physical instructor or something. It's just funny that since then, the vision was quite clear for me mm-hmm. of what I want to do. After the military service, I traveled the world a little bit. I enjoy surfing also. I enjoy the ocean and uh, I decided it's time to become serious and get some degree. So in Israel, people go to university after three and a half years of military service, a little bit mm-hmm. different. In the military, I was lucky enough because I had uh, I was a good judoka. I was able to get special like conditions to go and keep training with the national team. So oh, I, nice. I took it quite seriously and I competed a little bit internationally. But my real desire, I was always interested in human body beyond the competition. And I always saw myself as a role to help others. And uh, after uh, the military, I traveled the world a little bit, specifically Central America, and decided to come to the the promised land of California uh, to seek for my (laughs) education. And I chose to come to San Jose for a few years. And I went to San Jose State. It's a national training center for judo. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was one of my main selection. I was interested in athletic training in that profession. I had to give my parents a reason why I, have, I should go to the U.S. Yeah, You know, that profession doesn't really exist in a lot of countries. You have the physios, you have the performance coaches, the strength coaches. So I found some, something that is unique that I can study in the U.S. So uh, that was my excuse to get out and, and come over here. And once I came, I never left. Basically. Uh, did my undergrad during my undergrad. So I will, I, I started to practice judo with the San Jose state judo team, very big tradition of Olympic champions, world medalists. 
And I noticed after practicing in Israel in the national team, we had a strength coach that used to be a master competitor in Olympic lifting and in sprinting. He was actually world rank. He was back then, he was in his maybe mid 60s. And we got drilled like this is part of your training of judo. We're doing weight training, we're doing a little bit of movement training, but, and we do some cardiovascular training or aerobic training or sprints, etc. That's part of judo. That's part of becoming a high-performance athlete. And when I came to San Jose State, the judo was definitely emphasized, but a lot of the programming around it was not that solid as I expected. Hmm. And when I came to the class that we have to do uh, pres- exercise prescription, I, I basically developed a one-year plan for the judo team as, as a project for my professor. And I showed it to one of my teammates and said, why wouldn't you we make, make us do it? Let, let's go for it. We don't have anything specific in plan anyway. Mm-hmm. So we basically executed that. And I stayed with that for like 10, 12 years on the side, besides taking my career at, Stanf- at Stanford. So, so I was doing a lot of strength and conditioning for uh, the San Jose State judo team. I'm very proud uh, that at some point during that time, there are a few specific people that reach a very high level. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say it's because of me. There are very special individuals. One of them is Chuck Jefferson that we just talked about earlier, mm-hmm. that he won the Pan American Championships two times and uh, was a national champion as well. And a lady by the name of Marty Malloy, she was Olympic bronze medalist in 2012, arrived to San Jose State when she was 18, was quite on the target back then as well. It took her a few years to develop. You know, it took us really eight years until we reached that goal. So again, when we think about what's the best exercises, what's the best mm-hmm. programming, a lot of it is really, from my perspective, was developing the relationship with the, with the athletes and tracking over time, actually, when they get the best results and try to duplicate it to see what were the factors between Nutrition, you know, the sports like wrestling and judo, the weight cut is Mm -hmm. a very important thing. And some people respond to different stimuli differently. So, for example, Marty Malloy, she responded really well to movement training. Okay. A little bit of loading. We didn't really actually test her. Okay. We didn't do a lot of testing for her. At the beginning, we did. But as we went through the journey, testing was not the the most thing. A lot of movement prep, a lot of movement drills, a little bit of loading, and a lot of weight management strategies with our cardiovascular training. Chuck Jefferson responded well to heavy loading. He was the Mm. most explosive when he lifted heavy. That's what Mm. just how his body responded. Other people got really slow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even when I, for him, if I add more med ball work, for example, and plyo work, just didn't respond well, which was really interesting. And we didn't mm. measure specifically specific testing in that case, but just pure results from competition. Of course, mental thing <clears throat> is also very important. Mm-hmm. So we try to integrate some psychology, etc. Right, etc. But uh, mixed results uh, back in that days. Uh, today, there is way more resources, at least when I travel with USA Wrestling. So. I think it's more integrated these days than it was back then. I'm talking about the times between 2002 to 2014 at San Jose State. 
So <laughs> sorry, back to my journey. I kind of so, drifted a little bit. All good. When I uh, finished my undergrad, I started to do my master's degree and I had the opportunity to become a graduate assistant in athletic training at Stanford University, which is one of the biggest athletic department. Uh, start. Mm -hmm. And I stayed and worked there for 15 years. When I started, I worked with a lot of different sports, a lot of different types of athletes from water polo players to men's volleyball. I worked for many years with the women's volleyball team, men's tennis team. And then when I had the opportunity, so a lot of it was overuse injuries, just from an injury perspective, mm -hmm. tennis, volleyball, short, a lot of shoulders, low back, a little bit of knees. Every once in a while, someone will have roll an ankle or maybe we had over seven years at Stanford with women's volleyball. We had two ACLs, which is not bad. It's yeah. not bad at all. Uh, so we did, I, I personally, just as a professional being selfish that I want to see injuries, I didn't, I didn't see as much as I expected to see. And when I had the opportunity to work with wrestling, my world just blown away. First of all, coming from judo, thinking like judo training is pretty tough and pretty rough. Mm -hmm. yeah. Coming to watch college wrestling, everything that I learned about physiology and planning, like what in the world is going on in this room? <laughs> it's like, just like pure <laughs> misery and abuse. And, and, and think about for five months, they compete almost every weekend with a body weight that is below their baseline. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong. There is in college, there is very specific testing that we do before the season starts. We, we measure their body weight. Uh, we do specific gravity urine tests to make sure that they are hydrated at the same time. Okay. And we do skin fold calipers for body fats. Mm -hmm. And we put it into a program through the NCTAs, NCTAs and it shows us the minimal weight that they're allowed to compete and how long it takes them to descend to that weight. So it's supposed to be quite well monitored, but the reality is that there are a lot of fluctuations throughout the season. And think about competing for five months, making weight almost, almost every weekend, yeah. studying at Stanford at the same time with all the the stress of school, very, very, very difficult uh, environment and adds, again, the demand of wrestling so a lot of injuries. So as an athletic trainer, I become very comfortable to become uncomfortable. So you, you, you never know. It could be even from light drilling that someone dislocate their kneecap or the patella or you see some crazy things. And, and we tried different approaches to try to prevent injuries or to reduce the risk of injuries. Uh, let's, you know, at the beginning, there was all the FMS craze, you know, so mm -hmm. we FMS everyone and we tried to implement correctives. And I found out that some of my best movers were the guys that were injured the most because the FMS, for example, has a very big mobility bias component to it. What does mm -hmm. it mean mobility bias? If you're very flexible or if you have something like hypermobility syndrome, mm -hmm. which means your joints are quite loose, you're going to, and you have very basic amount of stability, you're going to score really well. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you're not going to get injured. It, it didn't show in that way. So, uh, you know, just scratching my head around that, I had the opportunity to bring Stuart McGill and uh, Gray Cook to debate each other together with, oh. you know, Craig Levinson. So we did a big debate oh. at Stanford. It oh, was wow. very interesting. Uh, I recommend if you have the opportunity to, to watch it. It was like quite intellectual debate between the two. 
One was trying to uh, say why his approach is better, and the other one was trying to dismantle that. So. Is that uh, is that available? I'm sure you can YouTube? find a way to get a hold of it. Yeah, and some some of the highlights are on YouTube. Okay, I'll check that out. And and just you know, when we think about preventions or risk reductions, there is more things than just movement because let's say uh, exposures to competition. If you mm-hmm. compete more, maybe if you're a better mover, you're going to compete more. So you're going to get injured more. Mm-hmm. So load management, right? Both mm-hmm. in the weight room, but also in practice, how much you practice, when do you recover, etc. So those things play quite a bit. That's what I looked later as I gained more experience with wrestling. We started to look at We had an electronic system that we put input all our injuries. So what can you do? I said, okay, let's look when the season ended. Let's look at what days the the athletes get injured the most, not in competition, just in training. Mm -hmm. And then we found out that our heavy training days, which they would come to the weight room at 6.15 in the morning, student athletes, you know, so people. Now the Stanford student, they study until 2 a.m. You know, they have high pressure. So early morning practice in wrestling. Then they would drill right after weight training to get some technique, come again in the afternoon in between classes, right? Morning classes coming in at 3.30 and live wrestling. Live wrestling is full go. They would do that on Tuesday and Thursdays. Most injuries, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Thursdays a little bit lower because they start to lower the load a little bit before competitions during the season. So Tuesdays were where we had most injuries. As a professional, all I can do is give recommendation to work with the coaches and let them know that we want to try to adjust things around. So that was another intervention, not directly related to movement or maybe mm-hmm. to capacity of athletes, but just pure organization of what we're So just another example. And at Stanford, again, uh, one of the unique things working there, you work with a lot of other professionals. You had the multidisciplinary approach work very closely with a strength coach. What was nice when I worked with the women's volleyball team where the women's volleyball team practice was just before, uh, beside a big weight room mm-hmm. where all our uh, performance coaches were running. So I'll, a lot of time, how much volleyball can I watch every day? You know, So I'll come watch the volleyball and then start to have like great conversations with the, a lot of the strength coaches debating and, and, and just very stimulating environment where people can really feed off each other. So it was very, very unique. And it's not until now that I actually can appreciate those times because now we need different contacts for our business here. And my coworker asked, do you know anyone that deals with that? I said, actually, yeah, he's now with the Phoenix Suns mm-hmm. or yes, he's right there in the Olympic training center. Oh, Yes, I know that doctor and that doctor. So being in a rich environment with a lot of people and also a lot of visitors that come from all over the world gave me and the other people that were working at that time a great opportunity for networking and and really expanding the knowledge. So yeah, so that's in a nutshell. And I can tell a little bit about my what I do now. Whatever you guys are interested, we can take it to different directions. Yeah. Well, you just went to the Olympics, right? That's correct. That's correct. Ah. So uh, uh, what I do now, I'm on the USA wrestling 
medical team rotation, which means I'm, I'm a volunteer and uh, I do it because that's my passion. That's what I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And twice a year, it de- really depends on the dynamics of, of the rotation. Uh, we provide, I provide medical coverage to when I go on trips, not just medical, but support where, whatever, wherever is needed. I will help the strength coach, the dietitian. And uh, I had the luxury, yes, to, to be selected among other people were few few people on the trip uh, the usa wrestling had 62 people on the delegation it was oh, uh, to me was one of the most inspiring collaborative work environment i've ever been in my life why is that you had national team coaches you had the women's coach the men's freestyle coach and men's greco-roman coach okay each athlete also bring their personal coach oh. together with them now you scratch your head. I can see potential conflicts here, like mm-hmm. where the national team coach says one thing and the personal coach said another thing. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you had personal coaches, you know, a lot of the centers for, for women, it's primarily in the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. There is another good one in Arizona State University. But in the men's, it's mainly Penn State University, wow. Cornell, and University of Minnesota at that mm-hmm. specific Olympics. So it's in universities and, you know, usually between universities, there is those rivalries and yep. how all that's going to work. Mm-hmm. But once we get there, it seems like everyone were very low key. I thought low stress. And you would see some, the Cornell coach working sometimes with a, with a woman's team and the Penn state guy helping Kyle Dake, who was a Cornell guy. And there was all that collaboration and they're, they're like asking each other questions. Everyone has the same target, right? The same mm-hmm. goal. We want to bring Olympic medals. So everyone really like put their ego aside and just work together. It was so impressive to see. And the same with, with all the support staff that, you know, it was a great uh, strength and conditioning coach and Mason from the Olympic training center, the dietitian, Rob Skinner. We had two other athletic trainers, Corey James and Shelby Hopkins. Corey was one of my graduate assistants. He's the head of USA Wrestling uh, Sports Medicine now. So everyone wor- worked together quite well. We had two weeks up in the mountains in a secluded area, oh. a training camp before we arrived. Very, very smart from the cool. USA Wrestling. So two weeks pre-competitions. Everyone <laughs> got together, all the teams trained together it, there was a small traditional japanese hotel with a at the bottom floor it's called onsen my wife is b- from japan by the way so i know a little oh. bit about japanese culture oh, okay. uh, onsen is a is like a japanese bath you know I, there is the same in, in korea right it's mm-hmm. like you have the cold the cold bath the hot tubs you have saunas in there so in the hotel in the bottom floor you had that uh, we had a nice Actually, I got lucky that we got a nice room, you know, tatami mats, mm-hmm. and uh, they put some nice bed on top of that. And we had uh, our dietitian did tremendous, tremendous work, Rob Skinner, working together with a chef to create. At the beginning, it was more westernized food. And, you know, slowly they started to sprinkle uh-huh. more of the traditional Japanese food. And he was worried that our dietitian was worried about it, but everyone just loved it. You know, just a little sushi, a little bit of curry, a little bit of specific yakitori, different, different type mm-hmm. of food. And 
they had enough variety, you know, everyone, some people are gluten-free. Every athlete has their own little craze uh, mm -hmm. with, with diets, mm -hmm. uh, according to what they're used to and their belief systems. And uh, the chef really tried to cater for everyone. So it was really impressive. I like everyone asked me, how was the Olympics? I said, it was great food. We got a lot of medals, but I ate really well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know? so yes. Uh, and then, so we did that for two weeks. In the morning, it was really interesting. We had one hour that we were allowed. They kept us quite tight because of COVID in that small mm -hmm. town. Yeah. So we had one hour in the morning that we were allowed to walk outside. Can you imagine? Wow. So, so we would, it was in nature. There was a nice creek behind our hotel and we would walk and they had people watching us basically that we make sure we don't go off trail. Oh, okay. And then we'll go, get back to the hotel and around nine o'clock bus would leave to the training facility where we had a weight room and a big, it was like a big basketball uh, court with big mats for wrestling. So it was, it was nice environment. Very nice. We usually between all the teams as a, someone that covered the practice, if something happens, if any, anyone needs more help, we would go to that facility twice a day in between meals. And that's it back and forth about 30 minutes drive from the hotel to the area, to the training. So we spent two hours driving for the support staff all day, every day. And we could also train ourselves. So it was fun. It was very, very good environment. And we had enough support staff to help each other uh, cover, which was great. And after two weeks, some of the teams started to migrate back to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed with the, the second group that stayed in that small town for longer. Mm -hmm. And then I returned to Tokyo as well. And over there... Again, very smart from USA Wrestling. They chose not to stay in the village, which I would love for it. But the village was far away from the training competition, uh, from the sorry, from the competition arena. So mm -hmm. we stayed in a hotel just by the competition arena, which was nice because we had a little bit more freedom to sneak out to the mall behind our hotel, <laughs> which was nice. <laughs> and eat some 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 more good food. Yeah. So over there. There was some connection with a Japanese high school coach who was kind enough to, we were able to arrange in the hotel a training facility for wrestling. And as well in the competition arena, there was facility that uh, people can train. And we, had, we arranged a treatment room and we, used, we brought through our connections a device that was developed at Stanford to cool down your core temperature quite rapidly through the hands called mm -hmm. uh -huh. Coolmate. Cool not that I'm promoting anything, but uh, uh. our group here at my work, we, we enjoy helping. Uh, there's a, a doctor of biology at Stanford in thermal regulation. His, his name is Dr. Craig Heller, okay. uh, which would be interesting for you to, to interview as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's a device that we use at Stanford for many years, but for some reason it never got to to the market and they have actually a lot of research both on wrestlers and on strength training or weight training and the ability to use it between sets and to actually increase the capacity so you'll be able to let's say it, they did a study on pull-ups and okay and i heard about this on, on yeah on one group they used the device between the sets on the other group they did not and they follow up over uh, i don't remember on top of my head, eight weeks, maybe 12 weeks. 
And then they saw that they were able to sustain much higher volume of pull-ups between sets. Basically, let's say you're going to go 10, you're going to go again 10. One group started to decline with each set. Oh, yeah. The other one stayed almost the same or not as much of a decline. Now, Tokyo, Japan is very known for the humidity in the summer mm-hmm. and yep. uh, the heat. So we brought few units and we use it on few few specific days when the heat was on. Yes. And the U.S. did great. U.S. did great. Mm-hmm. They yep, uh, yep. got three gold medals, two silver, mm-hmm. and four bronze. Is one of the best results for USA wrestling for a long time. So uh, we came back home with a really good feeling. And it was hard to come back to reality after that, being in that kind of adventure. <laughs> How many athletes were there for the 15, wrestling team? 15. 15. And they each brought a training partner. Oh, so it's okay. 30 athletes. Cause, and you had coaches. And so we have mm-hmm. to take care of everyone yeah. because if the coach, some of the coaches, like the Penn state coaches, also some of the Cornell and the women's coaches, the, everyone is wrestling, everyone is training. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly also coming from college wrestling, at least from where I was, it was brutal training. So I'm expecting, okay, let's see what's going to happen now. But it was, they taper really nice. They had a few days that was a little bit harder. They did like matches, but mm-hmm. in very small volume, high intensity, small volume, very typical taper. Very, very good to see. And like, I almost like, are they actually going to compete? Because some of them, they practice maybe for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, then they shoot hoops, play basketball, just, oh. or a lot of them will take a day off and they'll still come in. And again, something that just calm your mind yeah. and not, yeah. you won't be in it so much. And it was really, everything was, I thought, designed perfectly and uh, very, very enlightening. And, and the result didn't lie. And again, that was just three weeks or two weeks up to the competition. A lot of the work were done in their facilities before Tokyo, obviously. I'm sure all the blood, tears, and sweat were happening somewhere else. But once they got to to Japan, I think it was already a fine tuning of techniques, a little bit of high intensity for short periods of time. And up they go, did amazing. So going back to the cooling thing, I know like what I've heard is the hands, the face, and then the bottom of your feet. The ball of your feet. So the non-hairy surfaces of your skin, is where you have sh- specific shunts that actually can circulate the blood, and I might not explain it in the best way. And you can you have the ability to resist vasoconstriction if it doesn't go below seventy degrees. So even you say, "Oh, I can just put my hands in ice water," but it's not as simple as that because if you vasoconstrict, the idea is to be able to circulate the cold blood through your body mm-hmm. to cool your body that way. Yeah. Hmm. So, so obviously nothing like treating, if you have like heat stroke, that's not going to be the answer. You're going to yeah. put someone in like a complete cold plunge, but you know, some of the traditional way to cool people, usually we learn, put some ice towels on the neck, nice, on the yeah. armpit, maybe in the groin and the chest. Those researchers at Stanford said actually putting those towels going to create vasoconstriction and you're actually trapping heat in your body because everything is constrict- constricted in the surface. 
And mm. they claim if, if you actually look at the Corey Stringer incident when he yes. died the, from yes. his stroke, he was fine until he came into the training room. And once he got put ice towels on his body, everything uh. started to deteriorate. Now, I didn't read all the reports, but I'm oh. just saying what I, what I heard from wow. some of the researchers. So that's one of their claims. Now, I told them, yeah, you, sh- you guys should develop some stuff for the fit as well. Think about UFC fighters, uh, mm-hmm. people that train barefoot, judo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting uh, concept. And I know they are working now on the ability to know exactly how much it is be- like that you can see it on a software and know how long. You should, at the moment, you just put your hands there and you wait and you don't know how much is, is a real treatment time, but they're working on really calculating, getting all the algorithms in the device, which would be quite interesting. Do you know the, the specific temperature or temperature range? Because it should you, be between 17 degrees and I don't remember that. I think it should, all I know, it should not go below 17 degrees. 17 okay. degrees but there is a, also there is variability between people so yeah it's like mm-hmm. a gold kind of number you're to keep one of those around at all times <laughs> <laughs> yeah it should be interesting <laughs> I, I i don't know i don't think they are commercially available yet but it would be really interesting to use it in an environment of of resistance training as mm-hmm. well and i i remember at stanford one of our sports scientists is now working with the military. His name is Chase Phelps, who's a friend of Corey Schlesinger, also from Phoenix Suns. They used to experiment with it in the weight room. So he come to me and say, dude, IPR today. This thing is crazy. I don't understand what's going on. I, I thought it was just bullshitting me, but it was darn serious. He's very skeptical about a lot of, about a lot of things, but you, mm-hmm. you could swear by it. So. It's quite impressive. So before we started, we were talking about your trip after Tokyo and you, you got to see some young wrestlers trained. Yes. So one of my adventures with USA Wrestling, it was also a very memorable trip, was to Dagestan, which is a province in Russia. It's where a lot of Olympic champion in wrestling and judo and track and field come from. As you know, Habib from UFC, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of fighters, MMA fighters come from there. And sometimes you wonder why, like, what, what's so unique about this place that a lot of good people come from. So if you look at Russia wrestling, the amount of medals that they have is unbelievable. But if you think, oh, it must be a very popular sport in Russia, it's actually not. The, most mm-hmm. of those, mm-hmm. most of those uh, <laughs> fighters or grapplers come to from two main province, Dagestan, and there's another, another one that I always mess up the name, so I'm not going to say it, which is by <laughs> Chechnya, that they come from there. And it's actually a very small area where the culture of combats and, and strength is very prevalent. So it was very interesting to see, talking about long-term athletic development, some of the USA team came there for training camp, and then there was a competition after that. And when we came to practice in the facility, kids were practicing. It was like 9.30 a.m. Aren't they supposed to be in school (laughs) right now? So apparently they train in wrestling from 9 to 11. They go to school for like three hours and then they come back again and train. And again, what I observed, first of all, their technique was amazing. And those are kids like eight, nine years old, maybe 10 years old, very smooth. 
and a lot of emphasis on gymnastics, gymnastic mm. skills. You'll see after the practice, an older coach work with them on cartwheels and different somersaults and back rolls and pop-ups and all sorts of skills. And it became quite apparent to me that in that area of the world, probably the best coaches don't work with the national or Olympic team. The best coaches actually were with the kids, with the children. They emphasize the long-term athletic development, give the foundation of the base that mm -hmm. will stick with them throughout their career. So I think maybe we got it uh, upside down in the West. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, here, you know, oh, if you want to be the best coach, you probably NBA coach is the best, right? Or, or the best coach of football are in the NFL. But uh, what if you're going to flip it around and, and send the best coaches to work with your kids? Mm -hmm. uh, how, how impact, what kind of athletes you'll, you'll get there, there? So it's interesting. And talking about coaching in general, uh, I think that talking about just sports, pure sports coaches, I'm not talking about us as professionals. In a lot of other countries, to be a coach, a lot of them have like PhDs. I, I went yeah. once to give a talk in, in Greece. I'm afraid I just PE, PE teacher, or no, volleyball coaches, you'll be fine. No, each of them has a PhD. Who am I? Just because I had to work at Stanford, I'm coming in. And it was a, a big auditorium. And they had translators in the back, like with headphones and everyone's sitting with headphones. I felt like I'm in the U UN <laughs> and yeah, the, and this guy is a PhD, PhD, and I'm here talking. So what they're saying in other countries, you have very good basis, theor theoretical basis mm -hmm. of teaching and of sports science. However, what the Greeks at least told me, we have a lot of theoretical knowledge, but our practical knowledge is lacking. Uh, we're not really good at it as well with innovation like um i i had the luxury to visit one of the first actually the first surgical center in the world it's called the rizzoli institute up in bologna in italy very you see like the old sculpts that they used to cut people like back in the 19th century but they're saying, yeah, we're, we have a lot of tradition, but we're stuck too much in our tradition that we cannot move forward, which mm -hmm. was interesting perspective east to west, right? Or even though Italy is still a west, but like the old world and the new world. So innovation is definitely in this place, maybe Australia as well, right? It's a mm -hmm. relatively new country. So a lot of news, new ideas are coming where in other countries you have a lot of traditions. So Back to Dagestan, what was really interesting, it's a, it's a Muslim, uh, Dagestan is a Muslim state. Wrestling is, you, do, you wouldn't see women's wrestling over there. Oh, okay. So you will not see women wrestling. And it was really interesting to all, during all the day of competitions, uh, we wouldn't see women in the arena. But then the last day of the competition was like the ceremony before the competition. They had like specific uh, dance Kavkaz, they are from the Caucasus, you say it in English. Uh, dance, so all the women, suddenly you see all the women from all the town coming to watch the ceremony. As soon as the ceremony is over, they left. They didn't stay uh -huh. to watch the final. So it was quite interesting to see. Uh, the food is phenomenal. Again, I, I, I really enjoy uh, experimenting with the foods and probably one of the cleanest kitchen I've seen in my life. I was, you know, as an athletic trainer, you're always in the, when you go to foreign countries, you're always in the search for ice. 
Mm-hmm. So okay, where can I get ice? It's not as prevalent like in the US. You always have ice machine everywhere. Where I'm gonna okay, go to the kitchen. So God, I don't want to look into that kitchen. It's probably gonna be. I rather not look at what I ate. Just eat it. But <laughs> it was it was like few people in the kitchen scrubbing everything, and one of the most cleanest places I've seen in my life. Wow. as far as kitchen you had mentioned you were seeing photos of what we would consider really unconventional types of training techniques over here yes so we had our training facility and around the training facility there was a big track and all around the track by the size of the track on the fence you had big posters of all the wrestling champions the track champions judo etc And then you had the local champions of like different type of strength competitions, people that bent irons with their hands. You see an old woman like lifting kettlebells with her mouth or doing like crazy strength challenges. Yep. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed your talk with Steve Couture talking about kettlebells. They use even kettlebells as door handles in Dagestan. <laughs> It's just, uh, yeah, fascinating. And then, No fancy equipment. Like I work now in a company that we do a lot of data analytics and sports science, but over there, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of old equipment. They train their weight room is actually outside in the courtyard and they train outside. They do their uh, strength and conditioning. They do a lot of band work with movement. They do a lot. So that was another interesting conversation I had in the trip to Japan. One of the women's coaching coaches is a coach from Russia. And we had interesting that he was studying, you know, in, like we said, in Russia, to become a coach, you go and study st- your degrees in wrestling. So what did you study? I studied wrestling as my degree, basically. Hmm. And they studied that like weight training could be detrimental because it's decrease your sensory input okay. for wrestling so he said i don't know if there is scientific basis he said that's the first thing i heard but it's not surprising me because when i grew up in israel at some point with the national team we had a russian coach as well and we'll do weight training and right after and that's what he said also right after you gotta go and do some technical work so you won't lose the, lose the sensory input that you develop over the years So there are a lot of belief system about resistance training. What I saw in Rush in Dagestan is people do resistance training. So they had different machines from the 80s, they had the kettlebells outdoors, but then all the wrestlers gathered, they did their, their weights outside. And then at the end, they're always sweats and they go and they do a little bit of grappling after super light just to keep the movement. And they do some band work and that's just their methodology. They're very, very mobile comparing to, I, w- I wouldn't say US based, but less stiffer. because again, some of our wrestling wrestlers are incredibly mobile like mm-hmm. to be good wrestlers you gotta have good hips there's yeah. no other way around their hips are amazing mm-hmm. but it's just the the filler from what i saw i remember one of the coaches during the competition in dagestan you see if a u.s athlete would have done it would have blown his knee they're like turn around and their knees all twisted and they come back from the back end so just different just different again u.s u.s wrestlers are very skilled but very I think the physicality of the U.S. wrestlers is everyone knows it's going to be a dogfight when they go against a U.S. wrestler. Very, very physically aggressive and very well conditioned. 
You, I didn't see one U.S. wrestler during the Olympics, like gassing for air. Everyone was in top top notch conditioning. Are they still using these old techniques uh, in that village then? Still to t- today to train in Russia? Do you yeah, know? in Russia when you were there. The old techniques you're talking about for like the you know what they yeah. were doing with the kids? Are they doing that with the Olympic team uh, in Russia? I don't know. Oh, okay. But, but but what I saw, a lot of those coaches that I saw in Dagestan, mm-hmm. I saw them in the Olympics. I saw them on the on the side. Oh, okay. some of the Olympic champions from Russia is from the same small little town. I was oh, like, okay. oh, I know that guy. I saw him oh, on the yeah. trip. He was there coaching the like the local club. So it's really impressive. What is also really impressive, in a way, the US did it on that trip. In Russia, from what I understood, talking to some coaches, your personal coach or the coach that coached you from childhood, he follows you around. So it's not like here that you go, uh, you are in high school, your high school yeah. coach lead you over to the college coach, lead you over to the national team coach. No, they keep coming with you. You're going to have your national team coach, but your individual, you always, you stay loyal. Here is more common to move around, switch around. So it's just different approach, which I thought was very interesting. I, I, I'm not saying one is better than the other, yeah. just different, yeah, different approaches. That is really interesting because you think about um, long-term athletic development, right? And you know, if you if you have one coach that whole time, you can the coach can truly see your your progression, all the nuances, mm-hmm. and they know you better than anyone. Correct, correct. And I think with that, even moving to the national team and having the national the personal coach with you he can grow also so there yeah. is benef- benefits to the personal coach as well being exposed to all those things versus okay now i'm going to send my kids from california i'm going to send them to pennsylvania to train but i don't know what's going on or at least i don't learn as much as i could if i have some connection to continue on the journey you had said previously before when you came after you got your degree when you went and first got exposed to seeing wrestlers train, it really blew your mind as far as what I read and what I learned in a book. And now what I'm seeing in an actual training facility are vastly different things. Yeah. So physiologically, again, I come from the sport of judo it was mm-hmm. very, very tough. And I thought we're, we're doing things that were maybe not the best way, but I felt quite good. And then I came to wrestling and just the intensity and the ability to be durable throughout those high intensities for a long period of time. Most of them were able to, or, and their mental states, just their, just toughness. I personally, and I'm talking about college wrestling specifically, because that's the one that I was exposed to was just on, you know, doing bike sprints or like, intervals you know the aerodyne intervals and then going to wrestle right after that like hey, guys crazy <laughs> so that's an argument you know what is your goal do you try to make them tough or you try to be, make them physiologically sound do you try to make their movement quality and their technique polished mm-hmm. and excellent you don't have to do those but it all depends on your goals but again well what they go through is just unbelievable so I thought probably on the toughness level for me, you know, people think about endurance sports, something like triathlons or, or hundred miles run. For me, it's just doing the same thing or like mm-hmm. you're on a 
repeated mode and you just keep moving here, someone constantly trying to rip your head off in a yeah. way, if you may. And and you got to do it over and over again. Or they're drilling. It's like hard drilling, just hard drilling. It's not it's technique, but it's just hard, mm-hmm. very hard, over and over and over. And then on the other side, there is flow training. So some of the other wrestling approaches make wrestling more playful, not as banging your heads. There is time to bang heads, but then there is time to, to flow. Mm-hmm. That's as a 46 years old, when I, I, I enjoy jujitsu now, that's more or less the philosophy. I rarely go very hard anymore, okay. but I enjoy the movement and I flow and I, and I, I give some and I take some. It's a give and take game. It's not like I don't only take and try to submit someone or pass yeah. their guard, but but I enjoy also putting myself in bad situation and see how I can cope with it and move around it and play with my with my partners because at the end of the day I want to come back and do it again. I don't want to get mm-hmm. injured, be out for six months or whatever. Seems like that the flow would be you know a great time for learning technique too. Absolutely. And what happens when you go very hard, uh, you limit a lot of options also. You're, you're too focusing on not giving. Mm. And by that, you're limiting opportunities. So in my opinion, at least. Yeah. Well, I like what you said, too, is about is putting yourself in bad situations to see how you handle it and not panic and not freak out, but to stay calm and be able to stay aware of what's going on. Yes. And if you lose, you tap and you restart. Mm-hmm. It's not competition, right? So people got to differentiate. And I, I'm myself, I'm not a competitor. So again, my mindset is, is different at the moment. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I look at wellness and longevity and that's what I enjoy doing. And I want to do it until the day I die, basically. So this is one of my goals. Yeah. And and now with what you're doing full time, wellness and longevity, that's your biggest focus, right? Yes. Yes. So we're um, at the moment, I'm in a startup in up in Menlo Park, close by Stanford. And what we're doing, we're currently working with high executives, VCs, CEOs, males and females, age range between late 30s to our oldest client is 86 years old. We have a quite comprehensive assessment between blood tests, DEXA scan, movement quality assessment, and uh, we're doing different strength tests. We have uh, force dynamometers that are doing isometric testing for the lower body force plates if it's obviously we have some people with joint replacements so we limit that but we use force plates as well some basic push-ups and pull-ups yeah and uh, the mcgill core testing and vo2 with lactate threshold our vo2 test is not running is walking because we want to do a test that we can test our 30 years old and are 85 years old. So it's a progressive treadmill test where we change the, the incline all the mm-hmm. way up and uh, we increase speed as, as we find necessary. So we have a protocol with that. We create lactate threshold. Uh, you know, some of the aerobic capacity might not change mass much, but the lactate curve can migrate and we can see improvement sometimes on lactate and not on VO2 especially in very well-conditioned people. Uh, so we do that. Uh, we have a nutrition assessment as well and a cognitive test, which is, doesn't test your intelligence, but your ability to 
recognize objects and, and short-term memory, etc., through a VR at virtual oh, cool. reality. So we do all that, and then we follow our members all along the year. It's a year program, year by year, mm-hmm. and we connect to their wearables. If you use a Garmin or an Apple Watch or whatever you will use, we built a platform, an app that's still building it. Uh, but we collect all their data and we give them weekly, basically, recommendation based on the data as well as work with them uh, physically. And we have clients from New York, South Carolina, Alabama. Majority of them are in the Bay Area. But uh, mm-hmm. And then we look into how we're going to scale it. So it's quite exciting. I work with very smart people. Yeah, and I really enjoy it. It's okay. different. It's not you don't... So this is the goal for life, right? Uh, f- with an athlete, it's, in a way, it's much easier because, you know, I got to prepare you for those competitions. Here, they might have goals to climb the Himalayas or mm-hmm. a lot of them are golfers. Mm-hmm. If you need some business, Neil, I have a lot of golfers. <laughs> you know? So a lot of people that are obsessed about golf, which I don't know much about, honestly. So about the specifics, a lot of golfers, and we just, those are their performance goals, but a lot of them, you know, they want to live healthy life mm-hmm. and then die versus live long, but half so of the last, yeah. their last 10 years spent, spent in a wheelchair. So, yeah. so it's very interesting learning a lot because it's a little bit of change of directions, but it's a much broader, broader view and uh, really emphasizing a lot of things like assessing sleep and, and we have a sleep a specialist that work with us as well from the Olympic Training Center. Oh, so I, was just gonna, I was just going to ask you about the sleep thing. Yes, yeah, so really, really, for example, you know, you can say seven hours a day, a, a night, and etc. Or you can look at accumulation of 50 hours a week. Everyone has a bad night here and there. So oh. that could be another metrics that we're looking mm-hmm. at specifically, which is very hard as you get older, you know, people sleep span be, start to be short enough Shortens so, yeah. as you get older right yeah, yeah so what so what people are doing before they go to sleep what people are doing during sleep what are their drinking habits a lot of with this alcohol is a don't want to say problem but it's an issue because we know that alcohol decreases sleep quality you might fall asleep quickly but the quality of your sleep your hrv is going to go down your resting heart rate is going to go up and you will not sleep as good. So hard to recover. Think about that implication also for sports and performance. So a lot of interesting, uh, learning a lot of things, which is really, really great. Little brother emphasis. Cool. What's, uh, what's the company called? Or are you allowed to, to say yeah, the company? Or is it not like a secret? on Life. <laughs> After we started that company, we found out there are many other, not many, there are other Appear on Life. Appear on life. If you look, it's www.appearon.life. There's only like one page. It's it's a black box at the moment on purpose. And uh, you're welcome to visit Appearon right. in the park. Yeah. It's, you, you actually, it's really going to be interesting for you guys. You can think about how you can use some of what you're doing. And we can measure some things here as well. I saw that you had a publication and it was entitled... An outsider's perspective from the inside. What yeah. is what? Ah, uh, I what was that about? Read it. No, so, no, no. I oh, didn't. <laughs> I didn't read it. I, oh, I, I clicked on the. I clicked on the link, 
Okay. And it wouldn't pop up. So I oh. was like, I want to know what's okay. the... Yes, actually. So it's a, it's a good one. Uh, I, have, I have a good friend, dear friend. He's a physical therapist from Santa Cruz. His name is Jeff Moreno. And at some point, it would be great for you to interview as well. If you're ever interested, I can connect you. He, we brought him into Stanford to give. He's really an expert in running and running injuries and working with some high-level athletes as well. And he has a startup as well. Back in Stanford, he came and gave us a presentation. And uh, we asked him a few very intriguing questions. He talked about prevention and said, our head athletic trainer back, back then, Scott Anderson, asked him, what, what do you think is likely that you're going to come and give the same presentation with the same problems of increasing injury rates in runners 10 years from now? Kind of scratch his head and said, you're probably right. Because we know, we know a lot more about injuries, mm -hmm. but injury rates Keep still, going up. still increase. So the problem is, we, we're, he was thinking after, it's more of a, it could be a social problem more than just a specific biomechanical program. All the way that we structure, think about volleyball, for example. People go and play high school <laughs> volleyball, and then they go play club volleyball. Mm -hmm. There yep. is no break in between. They play all around. There's yeah. zero, not much diversification between sports you know mm -hmm. people specialize very early i saw it as an athletic trainer at stanford some of our high level freshmen were already beat up because they play so much yeah so and people don't have we talk i know in your courses you talk about movement literacy you know people that don't know how to tumble throw ball some people even like wrestlers some of them are really good in like grappling but let them do something else and they're like clueless they don't have a wide base of movement literacy mm -hmm. And some of it is in the school system. So my friend Jeff, he created a, an organization called Move to Thrive, nonprofit okay. organization called Move to Thrive. And he wanted me and some other people to be ambassadors. So I talked to, in that article, I talk about that, an inside, uh, an outsider, perf I, I don't even remember how, what it was <laughs> <Yeah>. called, <laughs> the name the, of the article. Yeah, the yeah. outsider's perspective from the inside. Yeah. Yes, just like how different uh, what I perceive where I grew up with education as far as physical literacy, etc., comparing to here and just all the definition of distance, how different things are. Or when I first came, I don't know if you remember the Mission Ale House in, in downtown oh, yeah, San Jose. Yeah, yeah. It's, a bar, oh, yeah. it's a bar. Yeah. And I asked someone in the bar, like, is there any good Brazilian place? And they say, yeah, it's right here in, in Santa Clara. It's five minutes away from here. This was my first week in, in, in California. Five minutes for me in Israel, five minutes, five minutes walk. Yeah. The next day, <laughs> and it's by Santa Clara University. I was downtown San Jose. So yeah, it's just there, five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. I did, did mention, say, five minutes drive. Drive. I started walking for like two hours <laughs> until I found that place. I, I was walking, walking, walking. So this is an example, you know, for us, like five minutes, you walk, like walking. Yes. And that might have changed now as well, where I came from. But back then, you know, we walk everywhere. We work a lot, a lot, a lot mm -hmm. of walking. And probably one of the most important things for talking about health span is just mm -hmm. walk. Walking, mm -hmm. yep. So, yeah, so th that article was talking about that, basically. Oh, fantastic.
Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to find another way to pull that article I'll, up. I'll I'll, fi- I'll find it for you. I'll oh, sounds good. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. I'd love to give that a read, definitely. So, well, thank you for coming on, Etan. Thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, fantastic yeah. conversation. So, yes, I hope it was uh, enriching. It was a great pleasure to be on your podcast. Any social, any way that people can get a hold of you, or any social media accounts that you're on right now? I am, but I never remember my. <laughs> my uh, <laughs> I gotta check it out. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> just just. Instagram, my name, Eitan Gelber. I'm sure something will pop out. I, okay. I got to check it. Just a second. I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> and I'm on uh, Twitter, but not very active. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's Eitan S. Gelber okay. on Instagram at motion is lotion 007. Oh, okay. <laughs> very <laughs> so, nice. Uh, just my name, Eitan Gelber. It will pop up. Pretty Fantastic. Sure. Right very on. Good. Well, thank you again. Uh, pleasure talking to you, and yep. uh, we'll chat soon, brother. Excellent. Right. Good to see you, man. Good to, Good see, to you. see you. Take care. Keep it up, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Take and care. to all the listeners out there, until next episode, be good to each other. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. And whatever platform you're on, either Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, please, if you could leave a review, we'd appreciate that. If you have any questions that we can answer for you, be sure to leave those in the comments also. If you're looking for more information on our education, our products, please go to www.stickmobility.com. And also hit that subscribe button to that YouTube channel. And don't forget our live Instagram classes three times a week. If you want to join in, grab your sticks and hit that 45-minute class.